this morning would have you turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 11, verse number 38. We're going to get right to it this morning. So John chapter 11, verse number 38. When you find that, if you would stand in honor of God's word. John 11, verse 38. The scripture reads this way. Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you, that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God. And they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with cloth. Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that as we come to Scripture that we are reminded that you have authority over all matter of things and that we simply need to come and bow before you, submit to you, and see you as king and behave as though we have a king forever and for always. We ask, Lord, that today that not one person would leave here without the opportunity, without the chance, without the reality that they need to put you as king over their life. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We've been with this story now for a fistful of weeks, and as a result, we see that Jesus has been in some ways questioned by the two sisters and certainly the crowd. They have this, this imposing question that leans in and they ask, and they are intent. Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? I don't know about you, but that seems like a big step. Miracle over eyesight versus life and death seems like a step, but nonetheless... That's what causes the emotion to roll up in Jesus. And there's something that is, that is fundamentally important that we recognize when we see these passages. You know, typically when we want to look at the emotion of the scene, we look in the gospel according to Luke and we see these powerful swaths of emotional feeling. You see the doctor that is Luke, he is, he is clearly and cleanly talking about all manner of detail about the, the physical traits and characteristics of the moment. He's talking about so much detail. But John does a beautiful job in this moment capturing the vibrant reality of Jesus having, having at the seat and the heart of his life emotion that is visibly noticeable to others and that is transparent in the lives of those around him. And it's something that you should behold. He is in this moment wrestling with the grief that has caused him to weep. He's wrestling with, with the criticism and the concern of other people. He is wrestling with this thing that's about to take place. I want you to really just take a moment and consider all of the, the interactions that you have with people in the world. And sometimes we don't understand why people are behaving or acting in a certain way. And oftentimes it has more to do with what's going on in their bigger picture. 
Jesus is about to do something great big, about to do something immense. And everybody is, what have you done for me? And we do this to, to God all the time. What are you going to do for me? Why haven't you done for me? What's the holdup? Why am I not important to you, right? And you see this emotion of Jesus, right? Jesus, again, groaning in himself. It doesn't deter him. His mission does not drift, although we would cause him to go off course on a regular basis. It says he came to the tomb, and then it says it was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And if you understand the timeline and the understanding of everything that happens in the New Testament, then you realize that this is not an unfamiliar scene from what we talk about when we talk about Jesus' own death, that he's laid into a, into a tomb and there's a stone rolled against it and there's this moment. It's almost as if Jesus is, is looking into the future here just a little bit. He is giving us some parallels, some, some foreshadowing. You know, that's the author's technique or the, the movie or filmmaker's technique. They give you a little glimpse of something that's going to happen or they talk about something that will later take place. It happens all throughout the Bible, by the way, where there's these moments where something occurs and it's like, hey, here's a snapshot of what's to come. And Jesus is in this moment, he's standing there in front of it and he's got this troubled, this emotion, this groaning. And he's looking right against this, this impossible situation. And if he were anyone else, this moment would be too much for him. He wouldn't be capable of, of managing this moment. None of us would. It's why in our own lives, when we grieve or we're hurting, when we come to these final kind of feeling moments, while we were falling apart instead of coming back together because we know we are not strong enough nor authoritative enough to deal with it. And so you see Jesus, and Jesus is not like this because he's a king. And he says in this moment, take away the stone. Something thematically you're going to see in this moment and then later in the story or in the, in the, in the collection of verses that we're studying this morning, that there's, there is a commanding of others to behave and do. And there is no question of his authority. He says this thing and he expects it done and it is done. He, it is not without criticism. All of leadership will gather up criticism. Trust me. That criticism's coming. But he expects it to be done, and it will be done. Because that's how kings behave. When you have the authority to make a thing from scratch, then you also have the authority to take a thing apart, piece by piece, right? And he looks upon this moment, and he says this, take away the stone. And point number one, if you're taking notes this morning, is that Jesus removes obstacles from our death to bring us life. There is a great obstacle between Lazarus and Jesus, and that's this, this, this bit of life that has gone from Lazarus. But this stone is a physical obstacle. Oftentimes in life, we are we are consumed with the physical obstacle. The physical obstacle is all we can think about. And our life becomes derailed because we become fixated upon the physical obstacle like the stone. But Jesus commands that it be moved. He is a remover of obstacles. 
I, I would love to hear your stories, and I would love for you to say, hey, Brother Ben, let's sit down and let's, let's just have a conversation. I would love for, for you to hear about how, how Jesus removed obstacles from your own story and your own life so that you can tell me how you came to him, but it would not have happened unless he had intervened and removed obstacles from your story. Because I guarantee that everybody in here, whether you realize it or not, you should take a hard look at your life and realize that he was taking things out of the way from you coming to a place of spiritual death to spiritual life, and it is all of us. And he removes obstacles. And this obstacle is a big one. And the criticism immediately, immediately shoots out. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. And it's like, wow. The physical obstacle of the stone is not the only barrier that's going to keep Lazarus dead. People's fear of what his life smells like is going to keep people from see, seeing him anything other than dead. And I wonder if you would take a, a hard look at your own life, if you could go back and tell me about the obstacles removed, but you could also talk about how completely unacceptably smelly your life was or your death was before you came to know Jesus. How absolutely when people would encounter you, they would say things like, oh, I don't know about that one. I'm not sure if we should lean into that lane. I don't know if anybody should even bother because that smells bad. But I guarantee if you look back over the course of your life and if you came to Jesus in a meaningful way and you have already given your life to him, that you probably had a pretty smelly life. I guarantee it. There were things about you that, you know, stank to high heaven, as it were, that didn't smell very good in the nose of those people who already knew the truth. And it made you certainly undesirable in the midst. And there's this moment where we will raise all the flags and say all of these things, all of these truths about someone that pro precludes them from being included in the story or the family because, man, they have a smelly life or a smelly death, and, and they are known for these pieces of their reputation. Let's just count them all out, all the things that would keep us from saying, well, they don't really, they're not a good fit, they don't belong here. I mean, I would imagine that if you were to ask Jesus and Jesus were to tell you, hey, about a year from now when we get together for dinner and Lazarus is there, people would have been like, but Lazarus is dead and he smells bad. I wonder as the time has passed in the course of your own life, if you could come back and you could tell the story of how you, in your own life, if you would say, a year ago today, I was X, Y, or Z, and look at how much has changed. You know, we were just talking about this, me and, and, and you know, in a conversation, me and a friend, we were just describing the reality of how much things can change in just a matter of a short few months. maybe just four days, your life could go completely off the rails and be completely 100% acceptable to unacceptable. And the world around you would reject you because of the state of your life. Verse number 40. Before I get there though, did you know that this is where most people's stories end? Verse 39. People will raise reasonable objection as to why we should not lean into the life of somebody that is terrifying, 
And as a result, we will agree that these are acceptable reasons to not lean in. And we will agree to not lean in. And then those people will be abandoned. But aren't you glad that's not the end of the story? Aren't you excited that Jesus doesn't leave it there and he doesn't say, you know what? The sisters are right. He smells bad. They say something else. Jesus looks at the moment and he makes a very clear point. Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Belief isn't optional in seeing the glory of God. That's point number two. It's not optional. It's not when you want to believe. It's not when it's convenient to believe. It's not if I like believing, it's believing. Part of the problem is, is that there's too much buffet Christianity in the world. We believe what we like about the scriptures, but we don't believe all the scriptures. We talk about these verses and we say that they're antiquated or they're old and we would decide that we would discard them and we would accept the ones that make it look like we're accepting of people. And we erase parts of the scripture where Jesus says things like, go and sin no more, or where he calls for righteousness or obedience. We would say, no, we like the acceptance and we love the forgiveness, but we sure don't like the obedience and we don't like the sinlessness. Jesus, we want you to save us, but we don't want to change. And and there's this moment when he talks about this belief, and he says, you don't get to choose when you believe. Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? It's not optional. It was never optional. It says, then they took away the stone. Obedience. Obedience, when he calls them into into correction, obedience is the response. This oftentimes happens in the homes of many of you in this room. You go home, you have a moment, you have a conversation with maybe a teenager or even a spouse, and there's some bit of criticism or, or disconnect where you don't agree about something. And then there's a moment where you come to some bit of correction. A little bit of information is given that says, oh, I didn't understand that, or I didn't know that was the reasoning. And then all of a sudden, what comes next? Obedience. I don't know about how many of you in this room ever told your parents that you were super grateful that they criticized you and corrected you and then made you obedient. And you're like, man, I sure am glad that the Lord God gave me parents that would correct me. And that my obedience then became the thing that was a joyful thing to me. They're like, no, I cleaned this room in smooth protest. I folded that laundry out of, out of spite I remember one time being in a, in a detention. I know I was not a perfect student in high school and I had detention from time to time. I tried to make sure it wasn't during football practice or during football season because that would get you into two kinds of trouble and I didn't want that. And I remember just thinking to myself, man, you know what? I'm going to do all my homework during this detention. I'm going to show that teacher. And I'm sure she was like, it's working. Detention is working. And I was like, man, and my grades were going up and she was like, he just needed an extra study hour. It's amazing how when Jesus calls them into correction, stepping over their criticism, that obedience is the next piece. Then they took away that stone, the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. There is a moment where we begin to realize that 
it's not just Jesus and us. Yes, that's enough. I'm not saying that it's Jesus plus. But what I'm saying is, is that Jesus is orchestrating every single person around us to utilize us to do a thing that might reach into a dead person's life and save them. So don't think for one moment that you don't have an important role to play. When he invites you in to do something, your role might be, hey, I'm just here to remove stones because the king says so. That's all I know how to do is roll these stones away. But I'm gonna do it because the king has told me to do it and who knows what he might do next. And I think oftentimes what happens is, is that in our world, we have this perception that we're like, that's somebody else's job. There's somebody that does that. It's not me. But Jesus said these words, take away the stone. And then he spoke to them about belief. And then they take away the stone. And you see that, that it's not Jesus physically moving the stone, but his words carry weight and the stone is moved. Because that's how kings behave. And in order for people to come from spiritual death to spiritual life, we're going to have to start acting like there's a king over crossroads. Amen? You didn't sound very energized. For us to start making a difference in the world around us, we're going to have to start acting like there's a king over our own life and a king over our family's life and a king over our connect group and our youth group and our kids' ministry. And when he says, move the stone, we're going to say, but smelly people are on the other side of that, Jesus. And he's going to say, believe me. And we're going to say, yes, sir. And the next thing that comes is the glory of God. His instruction, our obedience, then his glory. That seems like pretty straightforward math, doesn't it? Don't get me started about math. We used to just walk up to the board and stack and carry and do the thing, and now it's like we're going to break it out into all this stuff, and sometimes I think church is just like that, where we took and we added 49 steps. Instead of stacking up stones and carrying them away. It says, then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. What a statement. Jesus is already talking to his father about this. He's already sorting out his plan. He knows that their obedience is part of the equation. He's not questioning that. He tells them, they say their, their criticism. He gives them instruction. He already knows that the stone is going away because he's already talked to God about what comes next. Are you praying to God about what comes next? Believing that obedience will be part of the equation in your own family, in your own life? Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. For all the times I've ever heard someone say in my life, I just don't feel like my prayers are going anywhere. I feel like they're hitting the ceiling and coming right back down. I want to tell you that we lean on the scriptures when we don't, we don't feel very good about how our conversation with God is going. We lean on the scriptures. Jesus says that his Father in heaven always hears him. Our Father in heaven hears us as well. Lean on the scriptures when you don't believe your feelings because you shouldn't always believe your feelings. They can be, they can be wrong. I know that you always hear me. He says, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe 
that you sent me. The king is talking about his relationship with his father, and now he's leaning in and saying, and I recognize their deficiency. They need to hear me talk to you. You see, point number three is that obedience isn't optional when the king speaks. And oftentimes when Jesus is making clear conversation about what's to happen, he is laying out a dialogue in front of us, and we get to hear him. There's a reason why I like the red letter edition of the Bible, and I'm not telling you you have to go out and replace yours, but if you don't have a red letter edition, you ought to consider it because now you get to see the words of Jesus. And if you really want to do an interesting thing because you're all great New Testament students, right? I mean, a couple weeks ago, you declared that that's what was going to happen. You were going to go home and become great New Testament students. You ought to just pick up the Gospels. Start at Matthew and just read the red letters, you would be shocked at what Jesus says. And then you will, once you read the stuff that Jesus says, you'll want to go back and read a little bit more because you're like, that's weird. I mean, this bit's about Satan falling like lightning, and you're like, what? what? And you're like, I got to read more here and find out why Jesus said that. Just read what Jesus says, and you'll be like, man, he said some pretty crazy stuff. But the obedience that comes from us hearing and believing in him he says that he does all this so that we might believe. It goes on in verse 43. Now, when they had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice. And to be there in that moment, and I won't try to reproduce it for theatrics this morning, and I know probably many ministers have, and I'm not criticizing them from doing so, but he makes this statement about Lazarus coming forth and, and with this loud voice. And I, I want you to know that when Jesus speaks, powerful things happen. So much so that if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then it says, and he said, and he said, and he said, and this is the Lord God speaking. And every time he says, something majestical happens. Sun, moon, and stars are created. Day and night are, are divided. The firmament is, is made to separate the earth from the heavens. There's this picture of, of this creative action. He speaks into existence the heartbeat of all the different variations of animals. And when he speaks, this happens. You see it follow all the way through. Anytime you see that expression, by your mare and God said. And you see it into the New Testament when Jesus speaks. He's so powerful in his language that when he speaks... And the guards are like, we came to seek Jesus. And he says, I am he. They fall backwards. It says that they fell backwards when he just says that he is Jesus. Imagine if the Jesus of creation that is present in Genesis 1-1 and right before he goes to the cross and right when he hangs on the cross and says that it is finished, that when he begins to, with a loud voice, speak into this cave... that the rearranging of the molecular structure of all of life is being altered because he's that powerful. And when he raises his voice, that's something that I'm like, I think we probably all would have recoiled because in the spoken word of God, all the universe was made. And now he commands one person. Focus that attention. You know, when I lived in the Gulf Coast, 
A hurricane is a terrifying thing. But you know the thing about a hurricane is you can see it coming usually for days and days and days. And it's really interesting because you don't understand what it looks like until you live on the Gulf Coast when they're showing you all these possible trajectories for this storm that's brewing out over the Gulf and it's coming at you or even either of the coasts. And they'll show you, they say, this model says this and this model says this and this model says this. And it's like, well, if model B or C comes, we're going to get clobbered. If model A comes, they're going to get clobbered and you feel some sense of relief. And then you feel really bad that you felt relieved because you're like, well, they're going to still get clobbered. And then when it actually hits A, you're like, man, now I really feel bad. And people in that part of the world, they were talking about, they were so terrified about the hurricane. And I was like, yeah, hurricane's terrifying. It erase everything and just, you know, over several days just decimate the world. But then I had to tell them that when I grew up in and around this part of the world where I said, but that trust me, there's a more powerful force. And they're like, what? I said, it's just a lot more focused. I said, like the fingertip of God, when it stretches down out of the sky, it erases everything in its path, and it will, it will not discriminate. It will destroy everything. And you know now that I'm not talking about hurricanes, but I'm talking about tornadoes. And I would imagine the difference in that creative work of God calling into existence the universe, hurricane. And the moment where he speaks into Lazarus's cave, tornado. And all of that life is coming back. And all of that death is disintegrating right in front of him. And he speaks it. And he speaks it with such poignant force that obedience, Lazarus' form is obedient. Much the same way that when I cried out to him to save me, that it was focused and it rescued me. And it was powerful and it was overwhelming. And it ought to be for each and every one of us because he stands at the cave of your life and he wants to save you. It says, and he who had died came out bound, hand and foot with grave clothes. And his face was wrapped with cloth. And that picture, I was not perfect when I was saved. And neither were you. You still kind of smelled like your old self, trust me right? And you were still wrapped up in some of your old habits and some of your old things and you were still bound by them. And you were thinking to yourself, man, but I'm alive and this feels weird. And now I got guilt about things I used to do that didn't make me feel guilty. And now they make me feel guilty. And here I am standing before Jesus and I'm still bound in some small way. And then what Jesus says next, Jesus said to them, and I love that it's the them, them. Assume that in this story, the them is anybody who was standing there. You know, oftentimes when something happens, and I'll, I'll never forget, um, standing at the front desk of a Marriott at the Kansas City Airport, and we had had a change in hotel management, and we had a new boss. And this new boss, he, uh, he was of the opinion that he needed to show up early in the morning and come to work, which was great, because we could talk to him about all the stuff, but... He come through and, and he noted as he walked by, he, he looks at me and, and there was something in my uniform that he didn't care for or something. Name tag was a, was a skew or something and we were talking about that. And then he says, he goes, he says, why is there no music lobby? <laughs> music, lobby music. Why is there no lobby music? And I said, uh, excuse me? He goes, there's supposed to be music in the lobby. And I was like, oh, um, they turned it down 
on the schedule through the nighttime because it's deafening when there's nobody in the lobby. It's appropriate when the lobby's full. And he says, they? I said, oh, yes, sir, the undescribed multitude, they. I don't know who they are, boss. I think maintenance. They turned it down, not me. And he's like, well, I'll have to figure out who they are and get it changed. And then for the rest of my time working there, the music was definitely loud all night long because that's what Marriott Standard said they should be. And I just remember that we had this conversation about they. They is you and me. They is us, right? The same kind of conversation in a deacon's meeting at another church many, many years ago. We had recently put some padded chairs in the fellowship hall. People like padded chairs, by the way, don't they? Look at your neighbor and say, we like padded chairs. Some would say the attendance here might not be as good if these chairs were not padded, but I, I don't know. I'd like to think that we would be a lot less concerned with our comfort when our Savior died on a rugged cross, but that's just me. Some of you will get that later. But he looks up at one of the other guys in the meeting and says, you notice they didn't put any chairs, any soft chairs in this room. And I just panned right at him and looked right at him and said, remember the day you're talking about is us. Man, if I didn't take the wind out of his sails, and he looked at me and says, you're right. When he says to them, loose him, you begin to intrinsically understand that your role in the life of people who are being brought back from spiritual death into spiritual life is that you might be responsible to help them out of their bondage out of their habitual lifestyle that is incompatible with the life of a believer. And he might be inviting you to walk with people because not everybody just can walk away from their addiction to drugs or alcohol or pornography or, or any type of thing, negative language in the presence of their children or, or physical abuse or all the things that they're, that they're been woven into their life to respond the way that they feel like they should respond. And now Jesus is speaking with this focused energy into this moment to bring us back. And we still have some of these bad habits. And what we really need is to become part of a church family that will help take these bondages away from us. And they will hold us accountable and they will hold us up and they will unwrap us so that we can be free. But we think oftentimes that that coming to Jesus is the whole story. And Jesus is saying, they still have death all around them. Help them. Come join right up beside them. You see, we do a nice job having groups and classes available for everybody, but it's kind of hard to get there when you're bound. It'd be nice if you took somebody with you and said, hey, I'll carry you all the way. I tell people oftentimes when you invite people to church, tell them where you'll meet them. Tell them, hey, I'll be in this parking lot. I'll be waiting for you by this door and I'll go with you to class and then we'll go to church together. We'll do this together and you can feel them pulling off the grave clothes. Hey, I will, I will intentionally be part of this process and my obedience because verse, verse number 44, Jesus is just very plain. Loose him and let him go. Point number four is shedding our past may require help from others. And they that are supposed to help is us. I'm not scared of, of somebody when they walk into my office and they tell me, Brother Ben, I, I, I have struggled with this addiction or that addiction. I realize that when I preach a message like this, that that usually means that the possibility of those conversations go straight up. But trust me, trust me, 
You will feel the weight of relief when you let somebody else know that you're struggling. And if somebody can help you, if I can help you, if somebody else in this church can help walk alongside of you that won't see you and judge you, but instead say, we're here to help you. Man, then you'll know that there's a king over crossroads. And then you'll know what your role is here if you're already a believer. I'm here to help people out of their bondage so that they can come and so that when they're out of their bondage, they can help other people out of their bondage. And that Jesus keeps speaking into these lives. And as he does, we are there to celebrate with them because we have rolled away stones and we have taken off grave clothes and that's our whole job. We'll let Jesus do the powerful part. We'll just, we'll just sweat on it and move the stone and then we'll take the, the disgusting clothes and discard them. How about that? Today you might be wondering what, what you, your response might be to a service like this, a, a sermon like this, a, an opportunity to respond. Well, first is this. You might feel like you are completely spiritually dead and Jesus is speaking into your life right now and he's inviting you to come back to life, to come from a place of spiritual death and a spiritual life. And you might be saying, I need that so badly, but I'm afraid of how bad I'll be judged. And I invite you to come anyway. Come forth. But you might be here today and you might be saying, Brother Ben, I've been neglecting the moving of stones and the taking of of grave clothes off of people and I've just been spectating. And you might want to come and repent from that and say, I just want to serve better. I just want to put my yes out there and say, what do you need me to do? And look to the heavens and ask your king, what stone needs moved? You might also be here and you might be in a spot where you have have already come to life, but you have never been loosed. And you might be struggling with something and you might need to give that thing up, but you might not know how and you might want to ask for help. And that's, that's specifically why we're here. An army of people dedicated to rolling away the stones and helping people out of their bondage. Because we were once in that cave and Jesus called into our life and we stepped out of that grave. Stand with me today. Bow your heads, close your eyes. Lord, we thank you that you give us an opportunity. Lord, to be before the voice that is more powerful, that is more pointed, that is specifically unique. And I believe that in our midst, Lord, that you have begun to call on us to speak into our lives, to change the world around us. Lord God, I pray, Lord, that you would take the word Lazarus out of this story for this morning, just for this moment during this invitation, and you would insert the names of those of us that are here that are lost, that are dead in our sins, that are, that are completely without you, and you would just, you would, you would put their name. That the them that is left over, the rest of us that have already had that experience, that we would rise up and we would What? grave clothes need removed that we'll be obedient that it won't be optional that we'll be serving Lord if it's either of this type of thing Lord that we would surrender and say yes to you we ask for this in Jesus name Amen